case I haven't met you yet, my name is Garrett, one of the pastors here at Delray Baptist, and we are continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 18, Luke 18. Uh, while you're turning there, just want to highlight one announcement in case you came in a little bit late. Um, this uh, twice a, a year, once in the spring and once in the fall, we do something called a Bible boot camp, which is where we set aside a few hours together on a Friday night and a Saturday morning to walk verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Uh, to kind of help you see how it all fits together. So we're doing that this Friday night and this Saturday morning. So Friday night starts at 7, and the uh, deal on Saturday starts at 8.30, and uh, we'll be going through the book of, uh, of Hosea. So a uh, wonderful uh, yeah, uh, recounting of God's faithful love toward his unfaithful people. So if you would like to come, uh, we'd love to see you on Friday night at 7 o'clock. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us now, and then we're going to dive into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Let's pray. Father, among your people, there is much suffering. Trials, tribulations, persecutions, all sorts of various injustices that have marked our lives. Some of these wounds are older. And by your grace, we have learned to navigate with a limp in light of them, sustained by your grace. For others of us, the wound is wide open and fresh, and we have no idea how to do it. Father, we pray that this day, through your word, you would give comfort and guidance, conviction, that you would warm the hearts of your people to trust you, that we would be provoked to prayer always and to never lose heart because of who you are and what you promised to us. So, Father, would you give us eyes to see your word? Would you give us ears to hear from you through the scriptures? Give us hearts to believe and wills that are surrendered would you stir us to trust you and to long for that day when the Lord Jesus will return and make all things right. We pray this in his name. Amen. In June of 2009, a Christian woman named Asia Bibi's life changed forever. Uh, she and her husband are the only known Christians in a small village in Pakistan. Um, Christians in, in, uh, in Pakistan are, are forced into to lower class jobs. She worked as a, as a farmhand. And on this particular day in June, she was uh, working harvesting berries. And she received orders uh, from, uh, from her boss to, to go draw water out of a well. And she did. She went, she got the water in a bucket, and then she grabbed a, a metal cup, which was uh, sitting by the well and dipped into the water bucket and took a, a drink for herself. And as she did, she was confronted by her uh, Muslim co-workers, uh, three in particular, who saw her as a Christian, as someone who was unclean. And they began to ridicule her and to mock her and uh, told her to convert to, to Islam. And according to, to Asia's testimony, she responded by saying, I believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of mankind, what did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? Why should it be me that converts instead of you? Well, that night while she was at her home, a mob arrived uh, at her house and dragged her outside in front of her children and beat her and beat other members of her family. The police then came and arrested not the people who beat her, but arrested her and put her in prison. She was in prison for a year without any formal charges being brought. Then in 2010, she was officially charged with blasphemy and sentenced to death by hanging. And then for eight years, she sat in a prison, knowing that at any moment she could be called out and hanged for her her blasphemy of the false prophet Muhammad. Well, in October of 2018, the Supreme Court of Pakistan 
acquitted her uh, because of lack of evidence, likely the result of much pressure from around the world. But they ruled that though she was released from prison, she was not allowed to leave the country and that she now must remain in country while her case is reviewed, which there's no date set yet for that and could take years for it to ever make it back into the courts. As soon as that was announced that she was released, mobs rallied once again downtown and uh, burned pictures of her calling for her death. One Muslim cleric even publicly offered 500,000 rupees as a bounty for someone who would kill her. Simply because Asia, in the name of Christ, took a, a drink of water and would not back down from her profession of the Lord Jesus. We live in a world filled with injustice. I think we'd all agree that's all of that's unjust. This is what certainly fills the newspapers. Doesn't take much work to, to, to hear of religious persecution, racial discrimination, abortion, political corruption, crooked rulers, oppressive systems, unrighteous laws, crooked judges who afflict people who have no power to resist and no voice to protect themselves, which makes people cry out, not just people, not all, all people feel the pain, but Christians in particular to cry out, how long, O Lord, must injustice go on and take the blood of your people? How long, O Lord? Well, this morning as we come to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will help us to understand how to think about this. The context here in Luke 17 is that we are drawing near to the final week of Jesus when he will enter Jerusalem, be betrayed, be crucified for sinners. Jesus has been teaching about the coming Son of Man, the one who will come, who has authority to bring judgment. And last time that we saw, last time in, in Luke 17, we saw the need to be ready for that coming judgment. Just as in the days of Noah, when a flood came, and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, when fire came down quickly and judgment happened, so the Son of Man's return will come soon at any moment, maybe even before this service ends. That's what our hope is. Come, Lord Jesus. But if he tarries, we need to know how do we wait? How do we deal with injustice as it abounds and as it reaches us and those whom we love? Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And he, meaning Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respected man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? A big idea this, this morning, kind of a summary statement for what this, this whole text is about, is that because Jesus will soon bring justice to his people, we must persevere in prayer and not lose hope. Because Jesus, because Jesus will soon bring justice to his people, we must persevere in prayer and not lose hope. Jesus will soon come, and he will soon bring justice, which is intended to provoke faith, which is fueled by persevering in prayer and not losing hope. Let's walk through this text. We have no real uh, sections this morning, just going to watch how it unfolds, beginning in verse 1. Again, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is interesting because the point of the parables that Jesus gives is not often clear, at least not explicitly clear. 
Um, He doesn't usually give you, hey, this is why I'm telling you this. But he does in this case. He tells us the Lord's twofold intent, a, a positive effect and a negative effect. Positively, it's to provoke perpetual prayerfulness. We're supposed to hear this parable and this story and the Lord telling of it, and it's supposed to make us cry out to the Lord in prayer continually. And then negatively, it's to keep us from doing something. To keep us from falling into some sort of debilitating discouragement and despair, to lose heart, to give up. So this is intended to keep us from falling off the tracks that way and to keep our eyes set upon him. Now when he says we are to always pray, this is not a, Jesus is not calling for people to become monks and, and retreat from reality. Rather what he's doing is he's helping us to understand how to engage with the harsh realities of life. How do we, how do we, we can't run away from it as much as we might want to or often try. You can't escape the injustices of this world. So what, what must we do? Well, he says, always pray. He's talking here about cultivating an attitude of, of continual prayer. A heart oriented toward the Lord who, who, who sees and hears all that is happening which would also include patterns of prayer of stepping away. So to pray always doesn't mean that you just, yeah, you're just always praying out loud, but there's an attitude of prayer, a posture of the heart that's set upon him, always looking to him with little, what, when I was in college, they called them popcorn prayers. You just throw up little, Lord, help me here. Lord, I need, I need grace. God, give me wisdom. Those little prayers we're praying all the time, but also times where we're stepping away, shutting everything off and praying. He says, I want you all doing that all the time until I get back. And also, so that they would not lose heart. To lose heart means to be discouraged. It means to grow tired, to give up under uh, the, the weight of a wearying trouble. And this is a state of sorrow that, yeah, that all Christians are susceptible to fall into. And what are the sorts of things that might tempt us to lose heart and to cease praying? Well, I think we could go around this room and we could just talk about the burdens that we brought in here this morning and we could fill books we could talk about our sorrows our trials our temptations our giving in to temptation and the persecution that we have either faced or know of loved ones who have faced the suffering of unrelenting injustice and this is why Jesus tells this parable it's because this is the world in which we live until he returns. So here's the parable, beginning in verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. We don't know what city this happens is, happens in, and you know what? It just doesn't matter. Because any city on the planet has these sorts of injustices. It's inescapable on this planet. Everywhere in this fallen world there is injustice. And, but in this particular city that Jesus tells about, we meet a judge. As you well know, judges are people of of power. He has authority. He has responsibility also to ensure that justice is done. He is charged to know the law and to hold other people to account for it and to punish those who do not. And his duty is to give impartial justice to all people. How many of you have ever seen uh, Lady Justice, that little statue? I'm talking about what happened. What's, 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 the, what's, the, what's she look like? What does she have on her eyes? She has a blindfold on her, and her, uh, covering her eyes, and in one hand she has scales that are even, and then in her other hand she has what? A sword. All of those are symbolic to help understand what justice is supposed to look like. It's to be, Lady Justice is to be blindfolded, where all of her rulings are impartial. It doesn't matter if this is a famous person or a forgotten person in front of her. What matters is the person. The the scales are balanced because evidence alone is supposed to determine the outcome. No other factors. She also has a sword because wrath should fall on lawbreakers. That's Lady Justice. But that's not this justice. That's not the judge in this story. He is very much not like that. He did not fear God, the text says. You see, he had no respect for the authority over him. He saw himself kind of as an an end in himself. 
He did not have reverence for the true judge before whom one day he would stand and give an account. But also, he did not respect man. He had no compassion for the people under his authority. You see, he was supposed to be a refuge for the oppressed and those offended by lawbreakers. But instead, he becomes, by his disinterest and and likely corruption, he becomes a terror to the very people that he's supposed to be protecting. I think it's important to, to notice here that he's violating the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But rather than doing those things, he's dismissing God, and he's betraying his neighbor. This is a wicked judge. Verse 3, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Our, our next character here is, is indeed a widow. She would have been one of the weakest, most vulnerable people in the ancient world. Now, we don't know her age. We don't know if she was, maybe she was elderly, or maybe through tragedy, she was young. Either way, what we do know is that she was being treated unjustly by an adversary, some sort of opponent or accuser, which would have been sadly common in in this day, because she was easy to prey upon, because who's going to speak up for her? She has no one. You see, widows were easily taken advantage of because they had no social power and none to stand up for them. This is why the Lord, throughout the Old Testament law, gives so many commands about not oppressing the widow, and why the prophets speak so vehemently against those who do. The true religion, James says, is to care for the widow and orphan in their distress. But not this widow. That's not what happened to her. We don't know exactly her situation. Maybe she toiled in a field like Asia Bibi and was not, not paid. Maybe somebody had stolen something from her and wouldn't return. Maybe, maybe somebody did work for her and was now overcharging her. We don't know. All we do know is that she's in trouble and she's got no help. And and what does she do with her complaint? Well, exactly what she's supposed to do. She brings it to the judge, who is likely her only hope. And how does she bring it? Boldly and persistently. Do you notice there? She kept coming to him. It's a continued action over time. She keeps coming to his court. She keeps bringing his case. She keeps crying out, Give me justice against my adversary. This desperate, humble, helpless woman appeals over and over and over to the one who has authority and ability and responsibility to defend her against whoever this joker is that's oppressing her. Give me justice against my adversary, she says. Verse 4. For a while he refused. Which I think is just important to notice here. This would be an example of when people have discussions about privilege, this would be an example of privilege. He can refuse her. It doesn't affect his life. He can go back home to his plush place. Nobody's going to touch him. He's a man of power. Nobody can do anything to him. He has privilege. But this privilege should bring responsibility, not apathy. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, (laughs) I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She wants justice. He doesn't care. She keeps pleading. He keeps denying. She keeps returning. He keeps rejecting. He's resistant, but she's persistent. And after a while, he begins to wear down. He said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This woman's driving me crazy. Beat me down there, wear me out. It's a word, it's an interesting word, it's a word used of a boxer who wears down his opponents with continual strikes to the face. It's like this judge is saying, this woman's working me over. 
He's like a boxer on the ropes who can't stand up against the persistent pleas of this widow. So finally he taps out and surrenders to her request. Verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now Jesus wants us to stop. He wants us to notice how this judge responds to the persistent pleas of the widow. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear how this unrighteous, no good judge responded to the persistent pleas of a wearied widow. Verse 7, here's the connection. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He says, if a wicked, heartless, godless, unjust judge can be, yeah, can be moved to give justice to a widow he doesn't even care about just to get her to shut up, how much more confidence can you have that your loving, gracious, benevolent Father in heaven will hear your prayers and give justice to his children in the midst of all of their sorrows and affliction. Notice here God calls his children his elect. This is a word that God uses to describe people that he has set his particular love upon. These are people whom God foreknew in eternity past, who he predestined for his pleasure, who he called to himself through the gospel, who he justified by his grace, and who is now transforming into the image of his beloved son, just as Romans 8, 29 through 30 describes. These are what you might call his eternally loved ones. This is who God's children are. Now, do you notice how God's elect children relate to him? So God's related to them in love from eternity past, even in the present. Do you notice how we are to relate to him? They cry to him day and night. You see, when when someone is born again, God gives them a heart that now finds hope and comfort in him supremely. And God's word instructs us that we're to look away from circumstances and away from self-reliance and away from oppressors and toward God. You see what he's doing? He's saying, get your eyes up. Get them up to him. Cry to him. Pray honestly. Pray persistently. Wail deeply. Weep openly. Confess fears. Cast yourself upon the open ear of God. Now, if some of that sounds foreign to you, how do I even pray like that? You are in luck, or providence. You are in, it's working out well for you. There's a whole book in the Bible called the Psalms. They give you 150 prayers, spirit-inspired prayers. Over half of them deal with lament and grief and mourning. So if you don't know how to pray like this, welcome to the club for everybody else who's ever begun to become a Christian. This is, we learn to pray by going to the Psalms. We read them and cry out to God the words that he has given us there. If you want to learn more about how to pray through the Psalms, we're happy to talk with you about that. Grab one of the elders. We'd love to teach you what that looks like. But I think it's really important for us to notice an assumption in the text here. The assumption in our text is that God's people will encounter various sorts of injustice. It shouldn't be assumed that because God loves you or that you love God that that you'll somehow be exempt from suffering great injustices in this life. You see, suffering is, is not an elective for the believer. It's part of the required course. In fact, following Jesus, you actually, it actually increases your likeliness to suffer. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no maybe be persecuted. There is a certainty that if you're following Jesus in faithfulness, that it will rub up against 
the world around you and it will not always result in, in happy days. Or even consider this wrapped in a promise here about God's faithfulness. Listen in Romans 8, a familiar section of scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John said this before, and I think it's, I think it's very helpful to keep in mind that these sufferings do not separate us from God's love. But God's love does not necessarily separate us from these things. Believers will know pain and suffering and persecution and injustice in this life, some more than others. And this is, this is the story of Christianity. I mean, as soon as the church is formed in the book of Acts, you have Stephen being stoned to death. And you just watch all of the persecution that flows after that through the book of Acts, and then into Rome from 64 to 313 where Christians were arrested and executed for sport. And I mean, I've, I've skipped over hundreds of years, but, but even if you fast forward to the 15, 1600s, um, there was great revival in Japan followed by prolific persecution of Japanese Christians under emperors there in horrific ways. Or the great suffering the Christian slaves faced here in America between the 16 and 1800s where they were beaten and belittled by slave owners, many who even professed the same Jesus. Or the horrors the believers in the Middle East and Africa face even today at the hands of ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. Even our sister Asia Bibi who is hiding even now, looking out the window in fear in Pakistan. See, one of the things Jesus wants us to know through this parable is that God knows. God knows. He's not sitting in heaven with something else on the TV. He's not disinterested. He's not some apathetic, passive uh, father who's, who's out of the picture. But rather, God sees all injustice. And he is, he promises that he will bring vengeance against it. Every single bit of domestic abuse, every bit of child abuse, every bit of racial injustice, every lie, every, every adultery, every bit of corruption, every job lost because of unjust reasons, every bit of slander and deceit and persecution. He hears every scream, sees every tear, he knows every sorrow. And Jesus says this promise to his people. Verse 7, God will give justice to his elect. God will give justice to his elect. And there are many questions about why would God, if he's good and if he rules all things, even allow any of these things? And those are good questions. I want you to know this is the kind of church where you can ask those questions openly and not be ridiculed for them. Because anybody else who is thinking asks the same questions. I don't think you can read the Bible and look at history and not be confused at times. But one of the things that we see over and over again is God's faithful character that is put on display time and time and time again. And he promises that one day, he will make it all right in a way that we could never even fathom now. God will give justice to his elect. To give justice means that God will punish those who have done evil, very simply. He will avenge those who harm his people. In this life, wicked judges may not care, but God does care. 
and he is able and willing and desirous and planning to and working out to bring that justice. So as we read this, we're supposed to not allow suffering to silence our prayers or empty our heart of hope. So then the question that comes with this is, okay, if you're, if you're going to handle it, Lord, thank you, help me to believe that, but when? When will you do this? Verse 7, ask the question, will he delay long over them? Will God keep putting them off? Well, in one sense, the answer is yes. I mean, God's plan to bring justice does not unfold immediately. Joseph was in slavery and in prison for 13 years before God liberated him. Israel was in bondage in Egypt for 400 years crying out to him before he delivered them. This parable was told to Jesus and his disciples and now has been serving the church for some 2,000 years, turning hearts toward the Lord in the midst of all of the suffering for many who, including many who have died for their faith and many suffer even now for their faith. They're even waiting in heaven. Did you know that? Listen to this from Revelation chapter 6. As the apostle John gives us a window into what those who were killed for their faith in heaven do even now. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Even in heaven they're crying out for justice. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God says there's more sheep to be slaughtered before the shepherd returns. Maybe some in this room. But even now in heaven, those who died in this life for the name of Christ await final, ultimate justice. I think this gives us an important window that what God's doing in history and in the Bible is not just getting people to heaven and out of this place. He's going to fix the whole thing. He's going to come back and he is going to judge every bit of evil that has ever occurred on his planet. This is why the physical resurrection is so important. Because Jesus rose from the dead, but he promises to raise everybody else from the dead. Because when God's done with the whole thing, there's not going to be one spot. Not even a graveyard can boast and say, we've still got people. God's going to flip everything and make it all right. There will, in the end, there will not be one trace of injustice or evil that is not dealt with by God Almighty. This encourages us to remember, remember that his delay over bringing justice is not aimless or pointless. Rather, God tarries in mercy. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to bring final judgment, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What this means is that though justice tarries, it will not tarry forever. And when we stand before the Lord and see things from the vantage of eternity, and the joy that awaits those who have trusted in him, and see the perfect justice of God that he will bring against all those who have done evil, we will not think that the Lord waited one moment too long. We will see that his ways truly are above our ways and his thoughts truly are above our thoughts and that he is wise and just and good and that he is working things together in the end in a way that we, would, we never could have imagined. God plays on his piano both the white keys of seeming goodness and the black keys of seeming evil in a way together that one day we will sing forever and ever of his wisdom and his might. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
So in one sense, it feels like it's going to be a long time, but <laughs> when it happens and we see it in light of eternity, it wasn't, it wasn't but a moment is how it will appear. Now, whether justice will be reckoned isn't up for debate. Jesus says it's coming. There's no question that it will happen. God's character assures that it will. But what is up for debate is verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's important to see that when Jesus returns, what he's looking for is one thing. Not who was most awesome, not who had the cleanest house, not whose kids were the, you know, the smartest, not whose portfolio was most amazing, not who had the most social media followers. Whatever you're giving your lives to, he's, that's not what he's looking for. When he returns, it's one thing. Who believes? He's looking for faith. Now to understand this, this faith and what it is he's looking for, I think it's important for us to, to pause here for a moment and understand that, that this, is, this faith that he's looking for is indeed a gift from him. And through this, we, we recognize that we are actually sinners. That yes, we have been sinned against, but our, our greatest problem is that we have sinned against God. You see, God gives eyes to his people to see that that the greatest injustice in the world is not what has happened to you and is not what has happened to others, however horrific it may be, but that the greatest injustice that has ever befallen this created world is that people created by God have rebelled against God and that when he in mercy sent his son Jesus to proclaim the way of salvation, that we tortured him to death on a cross. That's injustice. Yet in mercy, three days later, he rose from the dead. And rather than just smashing us all, he gives good news of forgiveness for your sins. That your injustice will be forgiven because it's paid in full by his blood on the cross. That if you will confess your sin and repent and cling to him in faith, you will be forgiven. Romans 3.26 tells us that the cross is where God is seen to be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier. That means on the cross, God's justice for evil fell. But it fell upon one who knew no sin. Jesus, who stood in our place. And then, now, he can be justifier or mercy giver without compromising his character. You see, this is one of the distinctions between the God of the Bible and Allah of Islam. Allah just says, I'm going to forgive whoever I want to forgive. And I'm going to punish whoever I want to. It just depends on how, how your scales rule and how I'm feeling today. But if Allah forgives even one sinner, he compromises his character and proves himself to not be good and to not be just. Because there's no payment for that sin. It's not magnanimous for a God to just overlook evil. That's evil of a God to overlook evil. This is why the God of the Bible is truly good. is because he would give himself to take the judgment that sinners deserve so that justice falls. And now he is merciful to forgive all those who will humble themselves and turn to him. This is what makes the God of the Bible so glorious and amazing and beautiful. Now, something that's important to understand, though, is that saving faith is not a one-time faith. What we mean by that is simply saying, I think I should get in on that. All right, I'll walk an aisle, pray a prayer, check a box, get dunked, join your church. I'll go through all those motions. And then that's really all that there is to it. That's not what faith is in the Bible. That's called deception, deceiving yourself. It's being a religious hypocrite. You see, saving faith is not a one-time faith. It's a persevering faith that keeps on trusting. It's because you've been born again and now you're alive. And faith is a living thing that is to be cultivated. You see, faith that perseveres must be cultivated. Which is why Jesus told this parable. Verse 1. 
he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose heart. You see, what fuels the faith that saves is God's mercy continually giving grace to us and us responding in faith as well. Crying out in prayer, clinging to his word, repenting of sin, looking to him, fighting against hopelessness and despair. Jesus is giving us what we need for perseverance and faith. And this is very important because temptations will come at us when injustice does. When injustice comes at us, temptations come as well to do something besides praying and something besides hoping in God. There's many, I'm going to give us two, in how, 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 how uh, Jesus' parable here teaches us to war against them. The first is this. The first temptation that you'll feel in the midst of injustice as you're waiting for true justice is to take vengeance into your own hands. To take vengeance into your own hands. That when injustice has either happened to you or those whom you love and you don't see anything changing, that you just get fed up. You become impatient, you become angry, you become bitter. You become tempted to see the world and people through the lens of hatred. And that with words or with actions or meditations in your heart, you bring your own vengeance against those who have harmed you. This is a real temptation that all of us, I suspect, have felt who have lived on this planet very long. The Lord has a word for us about that. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never. Now in the Greek, this word never means never. That's exactly what it means. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, get your hands off my vengeance. It's not yours, because you don't know how to do it. Now, this is just as much to me as it is to you. But the Lord says, that's not yours. You're only going to do it wrongly. Because you don't know everything I know. And you don't see everything I see. It's mine. Get your hands off of vengeance and put your eyes on me. He wants us to not return evil for evil. This is exactly what Jesus did. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21, for to suffering you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. What Jesus is saying here in this parable is justice is coming. Get your eyes off of the injustice and fix them upon me. Watch how I suffered injustice. Look at me, he says. See how I trusted the Father, Jesus says. And wait. Wait. Because you don't know what God's doing in the lives of those who are bringing injustice against you. He may actually use your merciful Christ-like response in order to bring them to faith and make them brothers and sisters in Christ. Or he may use it as more evidence against them on the day of judgment. You don't know. God says, vengeance is mine. Do not take it into your own hands. The second response that I, which I would, I'm most tempted toward is that of despair. To just give up. Just become tired 
calloused, retreating from trusting in God, not reading his word, not praying, not thinking about the second coming. Tired of striving, of waiting, of hoping, seeing no real change, and begin looking elsewhere for help and hope. So you can actually be really active and not despairing, or and think you're not despairing, but you're actually, if you're despairing and and just giving up on God returning and fixing everything, you're gonna you're gonna set your hope somewhere else. It could maybe be re- retreating, but it, it may also be very active. So I, w- I want to ask you when, when you're tempted in the midst of evil and injustice happening to you, how are you tempted? What are you tempted to look for for comfort? Is it just to talk to other people who get it? What is it that you find you're looking, you're looking for for help? Political change? Escape to entertainment or drugs? What is it that you look to to find comfort? Jesus wants you to know that ultimately all those things are empty because none of those things are going to fix it. Only God will fix it. And what we're to do to not allow our heart to grow weary is to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12.3, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Get your eyes off of empty hopes, he says. Put them on the one who is faithful, who endured suffering. This is why Jesus called us to pray and to not lose heart, to see ourselves in the place of the widow who he cared for and promises that he's going to care for you. This widow, she had no relation to the judge, yet he gave her justice out of annoyance. How much more do we then have hope if God is our Father and we are his beloved children whom he knows and delights in, who would give his own son to redeem us, how much more hope do we have? This widow came to the judge without invitation. Her pleas were an annoyance to him, but not, not God's children. We're in, invited, no, we're commanded by God to keep coming in prayer and never lose heart in doing so with the assurance that our cries are pleasing to him and will be answered. We should, I mean, she, she could only draw near to the judge when his courts were in session. She was limited by opportunity to draw near, but not us. No, in Christ, we're assured that the throne of grace is always open. Our judge never hangs a do not disturb sign on his door. His chamber door is always open. He says we ought always pray and never lose heart. 1 Peter 3, 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The widow came alone to the judge. She stood in isolation before him, but not us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have this high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. And this is only one widow who moved the judge. But God's children, more than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky, crying out together in unison, both on earth and in heaven, how long, O Lord, come soon bring justice. You see, this, this widow, who's in a much worse situation than all of us because we're in Christ, she got justice. How much more hope ought we have that the Lord Jesus will bring justice for us one day? So as we conclude, let's consider three simple reminders. The first is let us be a people who pray for ourselves. Let us be a people who pray for ourselves. Not because prayer is powerful, but because it points us to the one who is powerful. It lifts our eyes off of all the other things that could tempt us to hope in them. Secondly, let us be a people who pray for one another. Delray Baptist, I'm encouraged by the way we do this, and I think we can do it all the more, is to learn about one another's injustices that we face, to hear one another's stories of our sufferings and the things that we have been grieved by or hurt by, 
to learn one another's stories so that we might be able to pray for one another and with one another. And finally, let us be a people who pray for fellow saints who suffer around the world. Don't get just the American Christian bubble mindset. Most Christians in the world are not in America. They're all throughout the globe and they're suffering. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ought to pray for them in the same way that we would long for people to pray for us in the midst of our sufferings. Jesus will soon bring justice to his people. So in light of this, we must persevere in prayer and not lose hope. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and believe that you are indeed the just judge of all the world, that you will one day bring justice that is good and right and true, and though it feels like it is slow to us now, O oh Lord, we know that on that day it will be seen as swift and righteous and good and true. So God, we pray that you would help us to be a people who do not lose heart or cease praying, but that we would indeed pray persistently, continually. Father, we also ask that you would help us to, to be humble and love one another by learning about one another, to hear one another's stories, to share in sufferings with one another. And finally, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a mindset of, of thoughtfulness toward our brothers and sisters around the world. So we pray particularly for our sister Asia Bibi, even now, as she hides, not knowing what's next. Might she even remember this parable and remember that you are faithful and that you will answer her cries for justice. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In his name.